I don't know if you've seen uh, much of the Commonwealth Games uh, kind of opening or uh, first events, but um, the start of the Commonwealth Games has kind of been reminding me of the Olympics a bit. Um, I've got a friend who was in the, uh, in the Sydney 2000 Olympics, uh, Dave. Uh, you might not have heard of him, he, but he had a job that was uh, integral to the Olympics. He was a civil engineer and he designed the drainage underneath the, the main ground. So... So he didn't get a lot of plaudits, like, you know, the medal ceremonies, nobody mentioned him. But in the lead-up to the 2000 Olympics, I don't know if you can remember, there was an awful lot of heavy rain in the week leading up to it. And I knew that he designed the drainage. And he's a good mate, and, like, not everything he did worked out. And so I was on to him. Is it going to hold up? Will the opening ceremony go ahead? What do you reckon? In his life, this is probably the biggest thing he's ever been part of. The rain came down, you know, history unfolds and the opening ceremony went off without a hitch and, uh, and nothing was delayed. I wonder what the biggest thing you've ever been involved in is. Have you had a small part in a huge thing? What's the biggest thing you've been involved in in your life? Uh, it's amazing the, the joy that he took out of having that part in the Olympic Games. What's the biggest thing going on in the history of the world? What's the biggest thing that's going to happen between now and the end of the world? It's the preaching of the gospel. The biggest thing that happens between now and the time Jesus returns is that God is gathering to himself more people. Now, you're not going to hear about new news feed. Nobody's going to get particularly congratulated publicly for being involved. But you and I and every Christian person has an opportunity to be involved in this most extraordinary thing that is happening in the history of the world. Seven rugby players from Manly got involved this week, didn't they? How would you feel being put into that corner? Could you imagine... What it would be like. I'm sure you've, you've seen the news, you've heard this story. Uh, they, they were being compelled to wear a jumper for gay pride and they said no and chose not to play. And I wonder, if you were in that position, what would you have done? How would you have responded? Could you imagine being forced in your workplace to make that kind of choice in your social group? Because I think the reality is in Australia... Decisions like that are going to become more and more common for anyone who follows Jesus. Where despite your desire to just kind of quietly remain in the background, more and more we are going to be pressed to make decisions to say things to appear fundamentally different to many people around us. And that's going to happen more and more in Australia. There's nothing new. There's nothing new in that. The church appears weak and fragile and friendless in Australia. And that's exactly what it was like when Paul wrote to Timothy the letter that we just heard a bit read out. Well, not exactly. It was weaker, more fragile and more friendless. Paul was writing this letter from prison in Rome. 
likely aware that his death was not far away. And as he wrote, he's writing to the next generation. He's writing to pass on the baton. And his whole plan for how this weak, fragile, tiny church is going to grow comes down to this. And what I want to say to you this morning, friends, is this is, this is the only plan for raising up a new generation of Christian leaders. This is the only plan God has that he's revealed to us. Now, obviously, as Dougal had said, this is what more college is all about, and I'm so glad to be here uh, to remind you of your partnership in the gospel with us as we seek to, to train up a new generation of Christian leaders. But it is not just about leaders. It is not just about people going into paid ministry or full-time ministry or getting a qualification. All of us are involved in passing the baton of the gospel on to the next generation. But I wonder what will keep you going? What will keep you going at this? And I want to encourage you by this um, part of Paul's letter to Timothy uh, in two ways. There are two things I want to highlight. The first thing is uh, the directions that are given at the baton change. And the second thing is why all of this is worth it. Um, the directions given. So we'll start there. And just to remind you, so Paul is, is an old man in prison. The church is very small, weak, fragile, and Timothy has been left in charge as a young man to find elders, to raise them up, uh, so that the, the, the church would, would go forward, would thrive. And these are the commands. These are the instructions. As a soldier of Christ, Paul gives Timothy five commands. We'll work through them each. The first is to be strong, the second to entrust, the third to endure, the fourth to reflect, and the fifth to remember. I just want to say something about those five things now. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, be strong is the command. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, this isn't some kind of macho command to be strong. Notice the strength that Timothy is to have. He's not a strength in his own resolve, in his own uh, capacity. He's not told to fight harder. He is to be strong in the grace. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be strong in grace? to be strong in an unmerited gift, to be strong in? Well, if you want to be strong, recognise your weakness is what it means. If you want to be strong, depend on God and not yourself. If you want to be strong, pray. Pray, don't work harder. Don't be tougher. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's where real strength lies. And for the Christian life, that is where power is. It is with God and not with us. Be strong, he says, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Pray. Pray, don't try harder. I'm not saying don't try harder, but don't depend on how hard you try. Depend on the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the first command, be strong. The second command is to entrust um, I think this is the verse that captures up 
what more college is about more than any other verse. A difficult verse to say if you've got uh, a, a kind of a lisp or a, um, a pimple on the end of your tongue or something. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. And the command is to entrust to reliable people who will always be qualified to teach others. The things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. This is Paul's strategy for the survival of the church, the thriving of the church, to see that it remains faithful. Guard the good deposit, he says at the end of chapter 1. Guard it. And he's saying you take that good deposit and entrust it to reliable people who will faithfully teach it to others. And you and I are standing at the end of a long relay race, aren't we? So Paul passed the baton to Timothy and Timothy to others who passed to others, to others, to others. And 2,000 years later and 15,000 kilometres away, here we are. And the gospel has been faithfully passed down to us. But it's not the end of the relay race, not yet. And the command continues to be then to entrust this gospel to reliable people, to faithful people who will pass it on to others again. That's the, the, the very reason for the existence of Moore College. And as Dougal said, one of my great joys uh, is the joy of every year seeing another batch of new students who are putting up their hands and saying, yes, I'm prepared to be one of those. In churches all around the country and all around the world, others have tapped them on the shoulder and said, we think, we think it's you. We think you should invest time. We think you ought to be one who lays aside other, uh, other careers or other options to do this full time. And then, then they come to us at college. And I'm excited every year to see people. This year I've, I've got kind of particular reason to be especially excited. Uh, you shouldn't have favourite students, I know, but there are two students in this year's first year who, who are my favourites. Um, they're my children. I think that's Okay. So, so my son and daughter are part of this next procession. Uh, and what a joy it is to see them amidst all of the other students having the gospel entrusted to them that they may faithfully pass it on. Because that's what it's all about. But it doesn't, it doesn't begin at college. It doesn't end at college. As, uh, as Dougal said, college, you come to leave. You come from a church, you leave to go to another church or to another uh, a community of faith somewhere. And it's, it's we, it's you who raise up the next generation, who tap them on the shoulder, who say, we think it's you. Can you invest time in this? And that's the second command, to entrust to reliable people. Now, this isn't a setup in any kind of way, but... It's amazing that you, you've just been told about all kinds of opportunities to do ministry to children and youth here this morning. See, it's not just sending people to college that is part of this, this job of entrusting the gospel to the next generation, is it? We do it with our own children. 
with our grandchildren. We have an opportunity in a community like this to sow into the next generation all the time. Uh, And whether that's in a formal way by teaching downstairs during this time or uh, school scripture or in any of the other myriad ways, youth groups, uh, there, there are so many ways in which we can sow into the next generation. And for some of you, maybe it's not children or youth, maybe the next generation of people of my age, will you sow into me? People like me. Can you find others to invest in, to encourage, to entrust? I want to ask you, who are you entrusting the gospel to? That's the second command. The third command is to endure. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 3. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Endure. Paul gives Timothy three uh, pictures here to show what that will be like. But do you notice here that he assumes it's going to be hard? He assumes there's going to be hardships. He's in prison himself and he probably had a fair idea he'd be killed. And, and he says, endure hardships like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. The three pictures he gives, the first one is of the soldier who doesn't get involved in civilian affairs, who only wants to please his commanding officer. And Christians, we are to live lives that please the Lord Jesus. We can't afford to be distracted from that goal by other things going on in life. The second picture there is the picture of the athlete who competes according to the rules. And for Christians, the ends can never justify the means. There's no moral shortcuts. We can't be distracted and we can't take shortcuts in serving the Lord Jesus. And thirdly, there's the hardworking farmer. Have any of you ever met a hardworking farmer? Yeah. I mean, it seems to me the, the only two kind of farmers there are is there's, there's hardworking farmers and there's hungry farmers, right? Because unless you're hardworking, you're going to go broke. If you're on a farm, it's hard work. And Paul is saying being a Christian is like that. Do you expect it to be hard work? Do you expect it to be difficult? So the hardworking farmer is the one who will endure even when it's hard. But did you notice with each of the three pictures, the cloud has a silver lining? So the soldier who pleases his commanding officer, um, the athlete gets a victor's crown or a gold medal, the farmer gets first dibs on the crop, on the crops, the produce. So when Paul says endure, he's not just saying grin and bear it, put up with it. There's real reward. There's tremendous hope. Endurance is not some kind of stoic, uh, just put up with it. There's joy in the midst because of what's in store at the end. Uh, the Commonwealth Games have, as I said, have reminded me of the Olympics, not just my friend uh, Dave's great contribution to the Sydney Olympics, but one of my uh, favourite stories about endurance, um, or enduring hardship particularly, is from the 1976 Olympics in Montreal from a Japanese um, gymnast named Shun Fujimoto. Uh, 
He was competing in the Japanese uh, team for the team all-around event. Uh, And so, I don't know if you know the event, I watch it every four years maybe, Uh, maybe every second Olympics. But this one was memorable. It's the closest teams event uh, in men's gymnastics ever. Um, In the second last round, Shun Fujimoto is doing the pommel horse routine. You know, the one he's up and spinning around. And at the end, he does his dismount. When he does the dismount, he, he lands awkwardly and he split his kneecap in two and tore all of the ligaments of his right knee. You can see uh, the picture there where he's got his knee cocked out to the side. But that was the second last event. As I said, this was a very, very tight competition. He didn't tell any of his teammates that he'd broken his knee. The last event for him was the rings. You know, the rings. He has to get lifted up. Uh, He's about a metre off the ground. He's hanging onto the rings and he starts swinging. You've seen the event? You know, they do all kinds of spectacular things. But at the end, what do they have to do? They've got to land. And so the rings is not his best event, but on this day he scored the highest score he's ever scored on the rings. He scored a 9.7. And you can imagine what you have to do to get 9.7. Spinning, spinning, spinning. His dismount was a triple somersault. And he landed from a height of about three and a half metres, having done a triple somersault on his broken knee and the pain sliced through him. But to get a good score, what do you have to do? You've got to stick the landing. And so he did. And he stood there for a second, perfectly still, and then collapsed onto the mat. He has walked with a limp ever since. He was never able to compete again. And he was asked afterwards, why on earth did you do that? What's his answer? It's a gold medal. A gold medal is the answer. The reason to put yourself through this is a gold medal. Now, that'd be nice. I like gold. But a a gold medal? What will make it worth it for you to endure hardship for the whole of your life? For you to go through the most difficult things, to be put in a place like like the Manly Seven, or what would cause you to endure through really difficult things like a gold medal? No. What about the hope of living in a place where the streets are paved with gold? Would that do it for you? What about the hope of living with no more pain or suffering? What about the hope of being around God and his throne forever? Yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it. And the picture of that goal is what enables you to endure. The focus on that prize is what enables us to endure. And that's the third command. Endure. Hard things will happen. Don't get distracted. Don't take moral shortcuts. Work hard. 
The fourth command is to reflect. Chapter 2, verse 7, reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. This is not saying that you can think your way to God, but God will give us insight as we think. In the first chapter, uh, you may have noticed it's the Holy Spirit who works in and through us to guard the gospel. It's the Spirit's work. And here it's the Holy Spirit who helps us to understand what the, what the word is saying, what it is that Paul's passed on to Timothy. The Spirit is at work in the word of God and we are to reflect on it. We are to work at that as well. About four years ago, we started a new course at Moore College. Um, as far as I know, there, there isn't another course quite like it anywhere. It's called, oh, we call it, Intentional Ministry Reflection. And what happens is we get four or five students uh, and a male and female staff member uh, in a small group and we ask the students to reflect on something that's happened in their life or ministry. And, and they reflect on it and think about what, what it is that uh, is causing them to be disturbed by this. Why, what don't they understand? Um, how does their background feed into their reactions to things? Why did they do what they do? But we get them to reflect theologically about it. What is it that you know of God? What are your, uh, your beliefs that drive your values that are seen in that kind of behaviour? What are the gaps between what you believe and how you live? What are the gaps between what you say you believe and how you actually act? It's reflecting on the word of God and on how that's impacting in our lives. Uh, I reckon undoubtedly that's the best thing we do at Moore College, I think now, in terms of shaping people, is, is helping people to reflect on the implications of the word of God in the way that we live and act all the time. But you shouldn't, you'd have to go to more college to do that. These are the kind of conversations we can have at morning tea time. These are the kind of conversations you can have in home groups and growth groups and Bible study groups, reflecting on the word of God and what difference it makes. If these things are true, what are my values? What are my beliefs? And what should that look like in my life? And, and Paul is encouraging Timothy to have that same kind of reflection here, to grow in maturity as a, uh, as a believer. All of us ought to be thinking like that, shouldn't we? Can you think of anything you've learnt about God in the last year? It's a funny question to ask. Some of you have been going to church for a lot longer than I have. But do you really think you knew everything that there was to know about God a year ago or today? Certainly no, I don't. What a joy it is to keep reading his word and seeing more of him and realising things that I didn't realise before, things that I didn't know or things I'd forgotten and forgotten the significance of. To reflect on the word of God, to dwell on it, to turn it over in our minds. It's a great thing to commit ourselves to doing with one another after church. I love talking about the football and the weather and all sorts of... It is very cold this morning. I felt 
completely freezing as I was riding out here this morning. Who cares? <laughs> but a conversation about things of eternal significance. Here's a group of people we can have that conversation with every week. What a joy. What a joy. Don't just hear the word reflect on it. The fifth command, the last one is to remember. Verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. So it might seem strange for Paul to tell Timothy to remember Jesus. I mean, how could he forget, right? Easily. I've got to say, after 25 years in Christian ministry, it's easy to be distracted by other things. It's easy. It's common. And we all need to be reminded to remember Jesus Christ, to remember particularly the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and to not let that slip off the agenda or out of our focus. Paul is chained, he's suffering, but he's not concerned because God's word is not chained. The gospel is true and powerful and living and active. I heard of a man in Nepal who was released from jail after being imprisoned for seven years for evangelising. Seven years jail is what you get for a second offence in Nepal. Um, so he's given a warning, he did it again, seven years in jail. A third offence would mean 14 years in prison. The man who told me about this was a missionary friend of mine in Nepal who met this guy two days after he'd been released from prison. He found him in a marketplace in the north of Nepal handing out gospel tracts. And my friend the missionary said, what's wrong with you, man? What are you doing? Don't you know you're going to go to prison for 14 years? And this guy said, yes, that's right. But I've never been able to get into the northern prisons in the country and I figure if I get arrested up here, that'll do it. (laughs) I am chained like a criminal, Paul said, but God's word is not chained. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. That's the news. That's the agenda. Is it worth it? Paul says, Yes. Paul's in prison at the moment. He's writing to a young guy and he's encouraging him to do exactly what it is that got Paul locked up. Is it worth it? Well, Paul tells us, absolutely. Absolutely. Listen to this from verse 10. Paul wrote, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
Here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. We will live with Christ. We will reign with Christ. God is faithful. Now, this is a promise that cuts both ways here, doesn't it? Because those who disown or deny Christ will be disowned in return. God's faithfulness cuts both ways. Everyone who believes will be saved. Everyone who does not will not. God is faithful and he cannot disown himself. And so all of Paul's ministry and every Christian ministry is for the service of others, to see others come to know and share in this salvation. That's what being a soldier of Christ or a Christian minister is all about. We're not all going to be leaders, but we are all servants. We are all ministers of the gospel. And in everything we do to help one another, everything that we call ministry, our goal must be to faithfully hang on ourselves and to bring along as many others as we can that they too will share this eternal hope, the salvation that Jesus has brought. Is it worthwhile? Well, I'll bet you my life that it's worthwhile. There is nothing more worthwhile There is nothing bigger and nothing more exciting going on in the history of the world than God moving to call people to himself and to have the extraordinary privilege of being part of that huge thing God is doing. Well, who cares if you never get a headline? Who cares if you're like my mate Dave who just did the drainage? You are part of it. Could you imagine sitting around the throne of God for eternity, just rejoicing that you are part of it, that you're invited to be a part of it? And that's what it is for each one of us, to be a part of this enormous thing that God is doing in making a people for himself from every nation on earth. Remember Shun Fujimoto, he did it for a little bit of gold. We are living in the sure and certain hope of eternity in a place where the streets are paved with gold. And we are gathered around the throne of our king forever. Is it worth it? I bet you my life it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray by your spirit that we would be strong in the grace of the Lord Jesus. We pray by your spirit that you would cause us to trust the gospel ourselves and to entrust it to others. 
Father, we pray that you would give us perseverance to endure hardships, that you would help us to work hard at reflecting on your word, that we would at all times remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. And Father, we pray that you would give us an unwavering focus on the the sure and certain hope of being raised with him in glory. We pray it in his name. Amen.